Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12, hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Christian, you are in a battle. Now, one of the most effective strategies to weaken an opponent in a battle, to come against an opponent in war, is the surprise attack. Surprise attack is basically an attack without warning. It's attack that the opposition is going to focus on someone that they're trying to derail, someone that they're trying to beat in war. And with the surprise attack, the one being attacked does not have the time to prepare. See, they're taken by surprise. One of the most well-known surprise attacks happened in December 7, 1941. Who knows what that was? Pearl Harbor. Now, when you are attacked, it doesn't mean that when Japan attacked the U.S. and the other people, it wasn't that they were stronger. It wasn't that they had more resources. They just caught their enemy by surprise. And the U.S. and the others did not see it coming. Now, as this pertains to the spiritual realm, we are also in a war. We are in a battle. And Christian, we are to be ready. This is an everyday battle that the Christian must go through. Now, it's a different type of war than we see man-made wars in the natural realm. This is a spiritual battle. This is in the spiritual realm. That will manifest itself in the natural realm. Now, the first thing we must know that we are in a battle. The second thing is we must know who and what we are fighting in this battle. And the last thing we'll speak about is how to fight this battle. So for today, today is a time of preparation to prepare for battle. Christian, you are in a battle. It's not a battle that you had asked to be in. It's not a battle, basically, that you signed up for. It's something that basically comes with the territory. Now, why the battle? Well, in light of who you are, reconciled to God in union with Jesus Christ, once an enemy of God, now a friend of God, you will now have conflict with the enemies of God. Because of your redemption... You've been given every spiritual blessing, blessing, and you are now in the heavenly places with Christ. The Christian inhabits two realms. Now, this phrase is used five times in the book of Ephesians. Spiritual realm or spiritual, spiritual heavenly realms or heavenly places. And we see it five times. And this realm is a new realm for those who have been born of God. Now, this realm can refer to both angelic and demonic activity. In Ephesians 1.20, it said that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. 
And we are, by implication, seated with Christ as he's raised us from spiritual death. We now sit with him in this realm, Ephesians 2.6. And as we are going to see today, there are also evil forces in this realm. We will see that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. You could say Satan's army. Now, because we are in Christ, we are in a battle. And as we have seen in Ephesians, we come to terms with our identity as these new people of God, these Cinderella story, these people who were nowhere and now highly esteemed as the bride of Christ. There's many things we have as far as our identity. But implicit in the text is that we are now soldiers, soldiers of Christ. Do you consider yourself a soldier? Do you often think of yourself as a soldier? We must, because we must come and recognize that we are in a battle. There is an unseen realm all around us. And this kind of battle is to be fought spiritually. And the weapons we are going to use are spiritual weapons. We encounter now in the heavenly places hostility, conflict, war with three enemies. They were formerly allies, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the flesh, the world, and our focus today will be on the devil. So Paul is basically saying, get ready, be prepared, you're about to hit some turbulence in basically what was a smooth ride thus far. Now this battle, as I said, is not maybe something you had expected. There's no armistice in this. You cannot raise a white flag and say, I'm going to be a conscientious objector. You were drafted into this spiritual war. And so Paul's coming now, finally, coming to the end. I don't want to burst your bubble, but be prepared for battle. This is not a battle that can be sidestepped. You cannot avoid this. There are places in Scripture where mighty God will avert us from certain things. But not this. He will be with us. He will provide what we need. But we will have to go through this battle. So we must understand we're in a battle and why. Secondly, who and what are we fighting? Well, we see this in verse 11. And 12 for that matter. We'll read from verse 11. We'll look at verse 10 at the end. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So we are fighting Satan. We are fighting against his schemes. And as we will unravel verse 12, we are fighting basically against demonic forces of the army of Satan, if you will. But the first thing we have to understand, when it comes to spiritual warfare, our minds... Our denominational leanings, our imaginations, our presuppositions can get the best of us. What are we doing here? We're fighting the schemes of Satan. And we will look at that. We must understand the enemy correctly. Not from images of Hollywood and TV. That's not what we're dealing with here. First of all, the Bible is our mandate for all things. The Bible gives us a clear portrait of our enemy. First, we start with Satan. 
Satan was an angelic being who fell from his position in heaven. We see that in Isaiah 14, 12, and 13, and Ezekiel 28, 12 to 15. The Bible describes Satan as a created cherub, apparently one of the highest ranking, if not the highest ranking angel. Because of his pride, because of beauty, because of status, he had motives, and still does, to usurp the Almighty God. Foolish. But Satan has some authority here. He is described as the God of this age. There's a world system, a spirit of this age, that he is the God of. Consider what John writes in John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He tells us in the epistle, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under his sway. What John is getting at is this world system, the spirit of this age. There is a demonic world system. We'll look a bit more at that next week. But make no mistake, he is the authority of this evil, wicked, evil age. Now, the devil has already been mentioned in Ephesians, but not to the capacity that we're about to see in the next 10 verses. He's been referred to as the prince and power of the air in chapter 2. And we were once formally with him, under his sway, as we see in 1 John. We once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air. It's the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, of whom we formerly were. So he's considered to be the prince and power of the air. In Ephesians 4.27, there is instructions for the Christian not to allow the devil to get a foothold. And it gives us a brief glimpse as to how, speaking falsehood, uncontrolled anger, things of that nature. Particularly there about anger. So understanding who he is, how he operates, will better enable us to understand how to fight this battle. Now, the text does not tell us really about the schemes specifically, but we will look at the schemes in the subsequent weeks. But the Bible further describes him in the words of Jesus. Consider what Jesus says about Satan. In John 8, 44, speaking to the religious leaders of that day, speaking to the Jews who forsook the Messiah, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus making the designation, your father, the devil. Well, Reminiscent of what we see in chapter 2. We were all by nature children of wrath. And folks, you have to understand something. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either in Christ under the authority and the spirit of Christ or you're under the authority and spirit of Satan. The Bible is very clear about that. But further, who is he? Revelation 12, 11 tells us he's the accuser of the brethren. Now, the word devil here in our text means slanderer. He's a deceiver as well. 
And he deceived Eden, Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. As we looked at, he deceives the whole world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And his very name means slander, and he's also called an adversary. And it's something else that he is called, he's a tempter. In Matthew 4, 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. And we will see in Ephesians 1, 16 that he is the evil one. So who is he matters. We make the designation biblically. And some of the errors that we could easily fall into is overestimating Satan's abilities and equally underestimating his abilities as well. We must understand he's got authority over the world system does not have authority over us. And there are limits and boundaries to his authorities. Number one, Satan is a created being. He was created by God. And the devil can only do what God allows him to do as per Job. We see that, Job 1.12. Now some believe that the devil is equal to God and, and they believe in the end there's going to be a fight with Jesus and the devil and Jesus somehow is going to get a left hook and knock him out and we'll all live happily ever after. No. That's foolish. That's, that's not biblical theology. Christ is far above all principalities and powers. Christ is above all created things. Now, we have to understand he's created by God, and you m may find this strange. He's actually, in the scriptures, used, used by God as well. But do understand that Satan is on borrowed time, and Satan and his minions have an expiration date. Satan, in the natural realm, in my own human strength, is way stronger than me. But Satan is no match for God. And you have to understand that his power is limited. Because I will say, for each born-again Christian, as there is such a thing, you must be born again. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He does not have authority or power over you. He can oppress you. He can afflict you. And we'll see how to combat these things in the weeks to come. Now, the limits and boundaries. He cannot be at one place, more than one place at one time. As God is omnipresent, Satan is not. Although the text says in verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That word for struggle can mean wrestle. So basically, the text is insinuating we wrestle day to day. But the reality is you are not fighting Satan in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Right now, you could say this. I heard a pastor say this once, and I think it does apply to this. In World War I, the United States and the others were fighting Adolf Hitler. Is that true? Yes. But were they actually fighting Hitler? No, they were fighting Hitler's army. And this is how it is spiritually, because we're not fighting Satan hand to hand. But what are we fighting? Spiritual forces here. Now, Satan is the ruler of demons, Luke eleven fifteen, And Satan is the commander of a demonic army in the spiritual realm. Let's read it. As I just did, I want to look at this a little bit. Our struggle is not against people. 
It's not against flesh and blood. We are not fighting a war toe-to-toe with people. How he manifests his plans and schemes can be manifested through people. If you don't see what's going on in Washington, I don't know what to tell you, but we'll talk about that. A struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces. Remember, he is the God of this age. He, the whole world lies under his sway. Against the world forces of what? Light? No. Of darkness. Early on in chapter 5, the Christian was commanded to walk as children of light, to be part of the light, to have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but indeed expose them. He's the father of lies. He's about darkness. And these principalities and powers are about the darkness as well. They're spiritual forces of wickedness, and they inhabit this realm as well. They inhabit this realm, these heavenly places. So you are not doing hand-to-hand combat with human beings. These are demonic angels, basically of differing ranks. They're spiritual entities that are unseen. They're real, but they're unseen. Now, don't panic and don't get scared because they have limited access to us. They will come after us, but God Almighty has given us strategy, he's given us strength, and most importantly, he's given us victory. So, be prepared that these enemies will not be seen or touched. Now, what are we fighting? The schemes of the devil. Now, again, the passage is not specific, but When we come to terms with the character of Satan, we could ascertain some of his schemes here. We could really deduce what, how he's going to attack us. And we will look at the schemes as they correspond with the armor of God next week. But we really don't need to know all that much about it when we know who he is. Now, first of all, what is the purpose behind his schemes? Well, He's going to carry out with the intent to draw us away from God, to entice us with deception, to cause us to doubt God, to cause us to doubt the goodness of God, to cause us to doubt the promises of God. He will ensnare us with false allurements, false allurements that will give us some gratification, so we think. They're not false in terms of the world system. The lies of this world, he will appeal with lies to the wicked desires of our flesh to try and trick us and seduce us, and he will tempt us. No question. He and his army. Ultimately, what's his purpose here? To knock you out of salvation? No. To hinder you from God's purpose. To hurt you. Spiritually, to distract you because his schemes coincide with his character. Now, understanding something about Satan and his minions, he is personal, he is intelligent, and the Bible describes him as we looked at 
if he is a liar, a murderer, an accuser of the brethren, a tempter and an evil one, he's going to do that to try to distract you with subtlety and craftiness. And so are his schemes. Listen, he's sneaky and he's deceptive. You know, you see the character traits. If your doorbell rang and you saw and opened up the door and you saw Satan, he says, I'm Satan. I'm going to try and kill you. You probably wouldn't open the door. At least you would say, whoa, that's Satan. He doesn't operate that way. He'll open the door and say, hi, how are you? My name is the devil. I'm going to try and destroy you. Can I have a couple of minutes of your time, please? No. You see, he's going to try and get his foot in the door. And you won't think that he's a bad guy initially. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't say that up front. He would appeal to something in the guise of righteousness. Because after all, we have to understand, he often disguises himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He's not coming initially in the guise of evil. Sometimes he's not. Maybe he would. But he will try to appeal to your desires. He will try to appeal to your flesh. And he will use the tactics that he used on Jesus to try to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But it did not work on Jesus. However, it did work in the garden with Eve. Because one of the things he did is he targeted the mind. And many battles are won and lost in the mind. Now, when I say him, I'm saying he's the captain of the army. They will target your mind. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery. Here's another scheme. Your minds would be led away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That you could easily be led away from sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Though he's a murderer, he's not going to kill you. He's going to distract you in ways that he can. Now, with Jesus in the wilderness, how did he tempt Jesus? What was his ulterior motive? What was the bottom line? He wanted Jesus to disobey the Father. And basically, what he'll try to do with his minions is cause you to disobey. We'll look at the strategies and the armor as it pertains next week. But we'll see his lies. We'll see his slander. We'll see him trying to hinder your testimony and to cause you not to walk worthy of your calling, to walk in unrighteousness. We'll see how he will cause you to doubt and ultimately lead you to temptation. And that leads us to how we are to fight this battle. We see that in verse 10. And we'll talk more about the how next week, God willing. Because of the nature of this battle, it is not a natural battle. It is a supernatural battle. We need the supernatural power of God. And understand something, Christian. God has provided. He's provided us strategy. He's provided us strength, armor. He's told us how the enemy is going to come against us. He's given us a, a map here. And he's provided us, again, we'll see the victory. So how do we fight? Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Or the NSB, the strength of his might. 
How do we to be strong? Well, there's a couple ways, but here, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to do what? Simply stand firm against the schemes of Satan. We're not called here to exercise demons, to simply stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It's not a matter of if, but when he will come. And it will come in what's known as the evil day. He will come more ferociously sometimes than others. So the, the way we fight this war is to be strong. We apply the strength that, number one, God has given us. Now, Christian, do you realize already in Ephesians, Paul has noted under the influence of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verses 19 to 22, I'm going to read it to you, his great power towards us who believe. In verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of God's power, his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Where is Christ right now? In the heavenly places. What is the authority of Christ? Verse 21. Far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things in the church. There is a power towards us who believe. And in chapter 3, Paul prayed for this power to be manifest. In part of his prayer, he said, for strength to be added, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being. And Paul ends chapter 3 with this admonition. Now to him, to God Almighty, the spirit that is in you, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. There is a power that works within us as per the Holy Spirit, as per the risen Christ. Christian, you have power. So that's number one, know you have power. So we are to fight this in the strength of God. Okay, to be strong in the Lord. There are ways to be strong in the Lord. And God provides the strength. Now, there are things that we are to work out prior to battle here. We are not just going to go in battle and just fight. There is training that comes with being strong next week. If we are able to stand, we will have victory over Satan's strategy. So here's the reality. We'll talk a little bit about his character, his strategies, but we don't even need to know that much as long as we are instructed by God and doing what God says by applying this power, by putting on the full armor of God, we will be able to stand. Now, what is the armor of God? Well, these are six pieces of metaphorical armor found on a Roman soldier. And what are they? And they provide strength. It's us applying the strength of God. And these are all contingent upon the gospel. These are all part of our truth, of who we are now, what God has given us. 
Number one, we're going to see a belt of truth, a, blessed, a breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and a sword of the Spirit. There's another tactic we ought to use, prayer. That will come at a later date. But God will protect us. God will keep us strengthened. All God is asking us to do is not fight for victory. Basically, now follow me. We'll see to fight from victory. Warren Worsby has coined that phrase. I don't know if other people use it. But the pieces resemble a Roman soldier. Amen? That may be no surprise to you. But you might be surprised to know that these pieces of armor are found in Isaiah. Particularly Isaiah 52.7, Isaiah 59.17, and implicit in Isaiah 11.5. More distinctives on the armor, God willing, next week. But we are to take action. God has provided the resources for us. But I'll say it again. And don't ever forget, God has provided strength. He's provided a strategy. You know what else he's provided? Victory. He's provided victory against these spiritual powers. Now, as part of the already not yet that we see in the New Testament and Ephesians, three places state that God has already defeated the powers. In Ephesians alone, there are other places we're going to go. But it's part of the already not yet. And this is a phrase uh, that I believe we have clear in the New Testament, as we'll look at, but coined by a great theologian named Gerhardus Voss. But we are to fight these powers. God has victory over them, amen? amen. But why are they still operable? Ever think of that? We'll find out. Now, as we look at Scripture, will Christ be victorious? Yes. Is Christ already victorious? Yes. Already? Not yet. Now, prior to the cross, Jesus explained that he was going to bind the strong man in Matthew 12, 29. He was going to deliver captives, which he did, Ephesians 4, 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Where are we in his victory? Colossians 1, 13. He has delivered us from what? The power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. We are in the victorious camp. We are soldiers in the army of God. Understand that one of the reasons Christ came was for redemption. 1 John 3, 8, he came to destroy the works of the devil. And Hebrews 2, 14, we read this. Since there, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, through death, Christ's death, he may render powerless him who had the power over death. That is the devil. Praise God. Christ is greater than Satan. Christ is greater than Satan's army. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, this is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
In the very same book, Paul will note in Colossians 2.15 that he disarmed these rulers, these principalities, and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. And Luke 10.8, and he said, I, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet as it was designed by God Almighty for him to do in Genesis 3.15. He's already victorious. But the consummation is not yet final. It will be in 1 Corinthians 15.24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Satan has an expiration date. Satan and his cohorts will be abolished. How do we reconcile this? This is a settled reality. And part of being justified by faith, as we covered in Sunday school, is an already present thing. Yet we are still working this out. We are still being justified. Christ has defeated Satan. And we look at this already not yet aspect there's a common analogy that's been going around. I don't know where it comes from. It might have come from a very bad theologian, but the analogy is pretty good. And this common analogy of the victory of Christ takes place as a World War II analogy with D-Day and V-Day. Now, follow the language. On June 6, 1944, it's known as D-Day. And what was that day? It's the day the Allies established a beachhead on the European mainland in Normandy, France. Looking back in history, war historians say at that point, when D-Day was successful, the Allies won the war. The moment they established this beachhead on the mainland, they broke the back of Nazi Germany. During World War II, which lasted from 1939 to 1945, the Battle of Normandy lasted. Now, this was the Allied liberation of Western Europe from Nazi Germany's control. So D-Day, when 156,000 American, British, and Canadian forces landed on five beaches along the 50-mile stretch of the fortified coast of France, historians say that that was when the war was won. But interesting about this war, the defeat of the Nazis was a foregone conclusion. And they won it in principle, but they were still fighting. The Nazis raged on even after D-Day, and there was bloodshed before they actually surrendered. It's kind of like that for this adversary as well. Now, Germany was defeated, but they weren't going down with a fight. And on D-Day... Germany was defeated, but V-Day is when the actual, the actual defeat was consummated. The Allied victory was not fully realized until V-Day. Victory in Europe stands for V-Day, and that was 11 months later, May 8, 1945. Not the greatest analogy, but I do, do think it's shed some light here. So in terms of Christ's victory already, but the consummation has to come. We must understand that Jesus Christ, at minimum, is victorious, dealt a fatal blow to Satan. And Satan is and will be defeated. 
But there are powers that rage on. And the enemy of Christ is now the enemy of Christ's people. But you can say that the fight was fixed. The fight, the, the war was already won at Calvary. So how do we fight this fight? Well, we must biblically discern who the enemies are. We must know we're in a fight and why. Discern who the enemies are and fight from the strength of God, the armor of God, the victory of God. We'll talk about the armor next week. Rightly and biblically discern these things. And we are to resist this enemy. That's what we're called to do. To submit ourselves to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee. James 4, 7. But it takes strength to do this. We need to be training ourselves to do this. So one of the mistakes we can make is overestimating Satan, but equally underestimating Satan. Now, we take a lot of, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we take a lot of analogies from war. I want to use now, and there's wrestling inferred in this passage as well, I want to give you a boxing example. Something that happened in Tokyo on February 11th, 1990, when the heavyweight champion of the world, a much more powerful and undefeated, a ferocious Mike Tyson, went against a number seven ranked Buster Douglas. It was probably the greatest upset in boxing history. So the scene is set. Many considered this fight a warm-up for Tyson as he was going to fight Evander Holyfield. And we don't advocate gambling. We're against gambling. But to understand the way these odds were, I want you to consider Tyson was a 40-to-1 favorite against Buster Douglas. Number one, never lost. Douglas is ranked seven in a not-so-great heavyweight class. In his previous fight, Douglas lost to Tony Tucker. So, now, Tyson is great and as powerful as he was, actually knocked Buster Douglas down early in the fight. But in the 10th round, something was to happen. The greatest upset in boxing history, arguably, Tyson would get knocked out. Why? Well, I'm going to read something from the person he was with the night before. There was a singer at that time named Bobby Brown who had an autobiography. And he said, quote, The two partied extensively the night before, and Tyson did not go to sleep early for the fight. And here's what Tyson said about Buster Douglas, deeming Douglas an amateur, quote, he said that he could beat Douglas if he didn't sleep for five weeks. You see, the two go hand in hand. Why did he lose the fight? He was not prepared for the fight. Why? Because he took his opponent lightly. Be prepared for battle. Now, this is not a fight that we'll lose. Ultimately, the war is won. But let's be prepared. This sort of scenario can be common for me and you as well. And sometimes we could rely on yesterday's victories. This is Mike Tyson. Nobody touched him. He was the greatest of all at the time. And he relied on his reputation. He relied on the greatest victory. I think it has some application for us. At least it does for me. So he was not prepared for the fight. So Christian... Be prepared for the fight. Know you're in a battle. 
Understand who you're in the battle with and be strong in the Lord because understand what God has given us. He's given us what we need to defeat the enemy every single day. Sometimes we're lapsed and sometimes when he rings that bell, we let him in. We don't recognize it. And we let him in and we let him hang out with us, for lack of a better term. No. So we have what it takes for this fight. And next week we'll look at more of the how to fight in the power of God. I close with 2 Thessalonians 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. 